Hello, everybody. Welcome to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. And today we have episode 293 for October 10th, 2022. And with October comes Cybersecurity Awareness Month. So happy Cybersecurity Awareness Month. I've got a link in the show notes if you want to check that out. Of course, every month here is Cybersecurity Awareness Month uh, on this podcast. So I'm not going to get too much into that. But they always have some great resources and they try to freshen it up every year with some new advice or at least new angles on thinking about cybersecurity. So if you want to check that out, go to the show notes and you'll find a link there. So we've got a news show for you today, and uh, I will also start answering some of your listener questions. You're starting to send your stuff in to Dear Carrie, and uh, I've got a couple to answer today. And as I've said, those folks will be entered to win a free copy of my book. Uh, I'll talk more about that toward the end of the show when I answer those questions. But we've got plenty to cover today. We're going to talk about the Optus breach uh, that affected about 40% of the people in Australia. So that was a big deal. We'll also talk about how Australia is trying to overhaul their privacy laws in the wake of that breach because of the way that uh, that information was not <laughs> given out in a timely manner to the affected people. Facebook has shut down some covert political influence operations from both Russia and China. But also, Facebook has given a security warning to about 1 million users about some scam apps that are stealing their login credentials. Google, who bought the health company Fitbit, for like $2 billion, I think, is slowly migrating Fitbit users over to Google accounts. And starting next year, you're going to have to start logging in using Google. Not a surprise there. Microsoft has released some new tricks for trying to keep your passwords safe. I'm not super thrilled about them, but I think it's interesting to talk about. So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I mean about that. The Federal Trade Commission here in the U.S., the FTC, is pushing for some new rules to restrict smartphone location data collection and sharing, which is a good thing. Google has a new tool that will help you find and remove search results for your personal information. And finally, I'll read an article from Brian Krebs, and this is about Zelle scams. Uh, Zelle is a payment option uh, supported by a lot of U.S. Uh, and some international banks. And I'm going to talk about why that is a problem, and then that will lead into the tip of the week, which is my advice, such as it is, about how to do informal or person-to-person -person payments. And then the listener questions. So plenty to get to. Let's get right to it. All right, first up, this is from Bleeping Computer, and I've got a couple articles here about the Optus breach, which is pretty significant. This affected like almost 10 million customers. So let me start with this article from Bleeping Computer. Optus confirmed yesterday, and that would have been like a week ago now, that 2.1 million customers had government identification numbers compromised during a cyber attack last month. <laughs> last month. In a press statement released yesterday, the mobile carrier updated the information regarding the personal data of 9.8 million customers exposed during the attack. In an investigation, Optus confirmed that a total of 2.1 million customers had valid or expired ID document numbers exposed to the hackers. Of these 2.1 million customers, 1.2 million had at least one number from a current and valid form of identification compromised, and 900,000 had ID numbers exposed, but from documents that are now expired. Uh, this is from a press statement from Optus. They said, quote, Having worked with government agencies to meticulously analyze the data for the company's 9.8 million customers, Optus can confirm the exposed information did not contain valid or current document ID numbers for some 7.0 million customers, unquote. However, all 9.8 million customers had other personal information exposed, including email addresses, date of birth, and phone numbers. 
Optus has sent SMS text messages to customers who I, whose ID numbers were compromised in the cyber attack with information on their next steps. Customers whose driver's license details were compromised can request a new driver's license number to prevent identity theft or fraudulent activity. And by the way, that uh, there's a link there in the article about uh, presumably on how one could do that. So if you're in Australia and you are an Optus customer who is affected by this, uh, there is a link there. Though, I again, it sounds like Optus has already sent you information about this as well. The threat actor had initially attempted to extort Optus with a $1 million ransom demand not to publish or sell the stolen data. After not receiving a payment, the hacker leaked the data of 10,000 customers on a hacking forum that included names, addresses, email addresses, phone numbers, and dates of birth. A few days later, feeling the pressure of law enforcement, the hacker apologized to Optus and its customers and claimed to have deleted all of the stolen data. However, as there is no way to determine if the hacker actually deleted the data, all Optus users should assume that threat actors may use their data in future fraud or phishing attacks. Therefore, it is strongly advised to be wary of any emails claiming to be from Optus asking you to provide further information or log into your account. If you receive an email or SMS text claiming from Optus, I think claiming to be from Optus, directly log into the company's site and review any messages there. In other words, don't click on any links they give you. Just bypass that, log into your Optus account directly, manually, and see if there's any uh, notifications or messages waiting for you there. That's something you should always do in all these situations. Whenever you get something from a bank or any company you do business with, or, or yeah, I guess even ones you don't, when they say, you know, we have a problem with your account, click here to fix it. Never do that. Always go directly to the account manually yourself uh, and then look for any kind of notifications there. There will definitely be some sort of a message there waiting for you if there really is a problem. All right, so next I've got an, a related article, and this is from The Verge, and it's about privacy laws being revised in Australia in the wake of this breach. Following one of the biggest data breaches in Australian history, the government of, of Australia is planning to get stricter on requirements for disclosure of cyber attacks. On Monday, and I'm guessing this is Last Monday, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese told Australian radio station 4BC that the government intended to overhaul privacy legislation so that any company suffering a data breach was required to share details with banks about customers who had potentially been affected in an effort to minimize fraud. Under current Australian privacy legislation, companies are prevented from sharing such details about their customers with third parties. The policy announcement was made in the wake of a huge data breach last week which affected Australia's second largest telecom company, Optus. Hackers managed to access a vast amount of potentially sensitive information on up to 9.8 million Optus customers, close to 40% of the Australian population. Reporting from ABC News Australia suggested that the breach may have resulted from an improperly secured API that Optus developed to comply with regulations around providing users multi-factor authentication options. A person claiming to be the Optus hacker seems to have corroborated this account of the data breach in conversations with security journalist Jeremy Kirk. Per details given to Kirk by the presumed hacker, the data was downloaded by querying the API sequentially for each value of a unique identifier field labeled contact ID and recording each user's information one by one until the data set of millions of records was assembled. The Optus hacker says they accessed an unauthenticated API endpoint. This means they didn't have to log in. As the situation unfolds, many Optus customers have taken to social media to express their frustration with how the hack was being handled, particularly in regard to notifying affected users that their data was at risk. And this is a quote from uh, somebody who tweeted named Patrick, quote, 
Amazing that Optus can email me when I'm a day late and paying my bill, but not when they lose all my personal info in a massive cyber attack, unquote. All right, so let me stop and just kind of review a few things here. So first of all, a lot of data got loose. Uh, That's not good. Second, for some reason, the hacker who did this grew a conscience and maybe just got scared because law enforcement, I'm sure, was breathing down his neck or her neck and and claims to have just thrown it all away and said, oops, sorry, my bad. Forget about it. Forget I said anything, though they did leak 10,000 customers information already. So, you know, that was weird. And then it turns out that there's some... Australian law that I guess prevented Optus from informing, I guess, other people that this third parties, I guess that maybe that might be banks. I'm not sure what, what the failure there was for the third parties. Certainly not the the first parties. They should have, uh, you know, notified the people that this happened, their customers, in other words, but then actually what happened here? I mean, so the the company provided this application programming interface, which is just a computer interface that lets you do automated queries and things. And there was some way to access this API that required no authentication whatsoever. And this person figured out there was a unique ID that could be queried for, like, here's a, here's a person's account ID. Tell me everything you know about that person. And once they figured out, you know, the account ID was basically a number, they, they just kept calling this API over and over again with the next number in the sequence. All right. Tell me everything you know about customer one. How about customer two? How about customer three? And and just kept going until they had millions of account records. Security is hard to get right, but man, we still make really dumb mistakes sometimes. This is, this is just horrible. Optus, I, I, in the United States, I would think Optus would be certainly subject to a class action lawsuit for having such crappy security, or in this case, really no security on this particular API. But if you are one of the people affected by this, I'm sure Optus is giving you some stock advice. So be very wary in, you know, in the future of possible you know, spam and phishing attacks with people that seem to know a lot about you uh, because they got this information from your Optus account and maybe using that to try to trick you or other people into believing they are you and subjecting you to some form of fraud. All right, next up, this is from Hacker News. And this is about Facebook shutting down some political influence campaigns. Meta Platforms, and of course, that's the new name for Facebook, Meta Platforms on Tuesday disclosed it took steps to dismantle two covert influence operations originating from China and Russia for engaging in Coordinated Inauthentic Behavior, or CIB, so as to manipulate public debate. While the Chinese operation set its sights on the U.S. and the Czech Republic, the Russian network primarily targeted Germany, France, Italy, Ukraine, and the U.K. with themes surrounding the ongoing war in Ukraine. And this apparently is a quote from uh, from Facebook. It says, quote, the largest and most complex Russian operation we've disrupted since the war in Ukraine began. It ran a sprawling network of over 60 websites impersonating news organizations, as well as accounts on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Telegram, Twitter, Change.org and Avaz, A-V-A-A-Z. I'm not familiar with that. And even live journal, unquote. The sophisticated Russian activity, which commenced in May of 2022, impersonated mainstream European news outlets like Der Spiegel, The Guardian, and Build, that's B-I-L-D, not to mention Build credibility by creating fake accounts across several platforms to amplify pro-Russian narratives. The campaign demanded both technical and linguistic investment as it entailed the use of spoofed websites that churned out content in over a half dozen languages, including English, French, German, Italian, Spanish, Russian, and Ukrainian. In some instances, the content was propagated by Russian embassy accounts. 
Meta said a number of these fake accounts were flagged and removed by its automated systems, suggesting, quote, an unusual combination of sophistication and brute force, unquote, that lacked the careful approach the actors took when designing the rogue websites to mimic the exact appearance of real news portals. As many as 1,633 accounts, 703 pages, and that's a capital P, so I assume that means Facebook pages, one group on Facebook and 29 accounts on Instagram were put to use to spread the propaganda, with the actors spending roughly $105,000 in ads to, pr- to promote the articles via the two social media services. The Chinese influence operation targeting the U.S. and Chechnya, in contrast, was a less expensive network and a largely failed effort that played out in the form of four separate and short-lived waves through November 2021 and mid-September of 2022. It consisted of 81 Facebook accounts, eight pages, one group, and two accounts on Instagram. So it's good that they're doing this, but it's, I mean, it just goes to show that Social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and TikTok and all these others are prime targets for propaganda campaigns. I'm glad they caught all these people doing this, but I mean, how many haven't they caught yet? And if Facebook and Twitter and all these other social media accounts, you know, were like they used to be back in the old day. I mean, in the old days, these social media accounts, you subscribed to people and all you saw was what those people posted and maybe what they reposted. Now they are algorithmically driven to to produce other things that you didn't ask for which enables all of this propaganda to happen so you know i'm (laughs) i'm glad facebook is doing this but we still have a fundamental problem here with social media okay so there's also some bad news involving facebook this is from nine to five mac meta has issued a facebook security warning to around 1 million users that their login credentials may have been stolen by scam apps while most of the apps were Android ones, 47 of, them, 47 of them were iOS apps found in Apple's App Store. Many of the apps and websites offer third-party login options, with the most common ones being login with Facebook, login with Google, or login with Apple. The intention behind these login methods is to make it quicker and easier to start using an app by skipping the need to register an account. However, a bad actor can also use this approach to steal your credentials. And Gadget reports that this is what a whole bunch of scam apps have done with the login with Facebook option. And this is apparently a quote from Engadget. It says, Meta is warning 1 million Facebook users that their account information may have been compromised by third-party apps from Apple or Google stores. In a new report, the company's security researchers say that in the last year, they've identified more than 400 scammy apps designed to hijack users' Facebook account credentials. According to the company, the apps are disguised as fun or useful services like photo editors, camera apps, VPN services, horoscope apps, and fitness tracking tools. The apps often require users to log Log in with Facebook before they can access the promised features, but these login features are merely a means of stealing Facebook users' account info. And Meta's director of threat disruption, what a title, David Agranovich, noted that many of the apps Meta identified were barely functional. All right, that's the end of the Engadget quote. Back to the regular article. If you have used one of the known scam apps, Meta will push a message to you in the Facebook app, and apparently the message says, "A security note from Meta." You may have logged into Facebook from a malicious app designed to steal your Facebook account information. To protect your information, we recommend you secure your account immediately, unquote. The site says that the iOS apps identified mostly appear to be targeting business users with names like Meta Business, FB Analytics, and so on. Meta has provided the full list of apps to both Apple and Google so they can be removed from their respective app stores. Apple, of course, argues that its app review process keeps users safe from scams, and this is why it shouldn't be obliged by antitrust concerns to allow third-party app stores or sideloading of iOS apps. 
this latest revelation could be said to provide ammunition to both sides of the debate. On one hand, dozens of scam apps made it through app review, despite the fact that A, they were stealing credentials, and B, scarcely worked. On the other, there were far fewer of these apps in the App Store than in Google's Play Store. Okay, so I brought this up for a couple of reasons. First of all, don't use sign in with Facebook. Don't use sign in with Google. If you must, sign in with Apple is actually a pretty private way to go. In fact, when you do that, you can even give them a fake email address or actually it's an email alias so that when you do sign in, you don't even give the, the company you're signing in with or the app you're signing in with your real email. It's a it's a it's an alias which forwards to your regular account, but but you can cut that alias off at any time without affecting the rest of your stuff set to that account. So log in with Apple if you need to pick one of these is okay. But but really, if you're using a password manager, that's just as easy to, to create a brand new account. Give them your email address and create a brand new password. Make a unique password for that account, which is the whole point of having a password manager. Uh, and just do that instead. Now, however, these are apps on the phone. I realize that it is not quite as convenient to do on your phone as it is on a web page uh, when you've got a plug-in for LastPass or 1Password or one of the password managers. Nevertheless, I still recommend that that is what you do if you can, just create a dedicated account. Now, the other point this article makes is about app stores. And that last, that last sentence doesn't even really make sense if you think about it. So it's talking about how Apple says that, you know, if, if we allow third-party app stores, then all sorts of bad apps are going to get through. That may or may not be true, but it was comparing, in this case, Apple to Google, which Google basically claims the same thing. I mean, they've got Google's app store is supposed to stop and catch these apps as well. It looks like Google's Play Store did a worse job than Apple, or maybe these bad guys just happened to target Google more than they targeted Apple. Who's to say? But in this case, they both failed to catch these apps ahead of time. And in their defense, this sort of thing is really hard to catch. Thousands and thousands of apps are submitted to these guys monthly, probably, probably more than that. And, you know, they can have automated processes that try to look through those apps for something fishy. But sign in with Google and sign us with, with Facebook, those are very common things to have. And whenever you have that, you're going to have to trust that the app is not somehow stealing those credentials from you. So the whole thing about having third-party app stores is, is a thorny discussion. Personally, I think that I think you should have the option. I think legally that should be your right to do so. I just would almost always counsel for security reasons that you never take that option, assuming someday that Apple is forced to give you that option. And the same, of course, is true with Android. You, you can use alternative app stores. I just recommend that you don't. All right, another Google story. This is from Hacker News. Wearable technology company Fitbit has announced a new clause that requires users to switch to a Google account, quote unquote, sometime in 2023. And this is a quote from a Fitbit announcement. They say, quote, in 2023, we plan to launch Google accounts on Fitbit, which will enable use of Fitbit with a Google account, unquote. The switch will not go live for all users in 2023. Rather, support for Fitbit accounts is expected to continue until at least the beginning of 2025, after which a Google account will be mandatory for using the devices. The deeper integration also means that a Google account will be compulsory to sign up for Fitbit and activate new features, including those that incorporate Google products and services such as Google Assistant. Also necessitated as part of the transition in, uh, is the consent from the part of the users to move their personal data from Fitbit to Google. The internet giant stressed that users' personal information will not be used to serve ads. The goal, Fitbit said, is to include a, quote, single login for Fitbit and other Google services, industry-leading account security, centralized privacy controls for Fitbit user data, and more features from Google on Fitbit, unquote. 
The development comes more than three years after Google announced similar changes in May 2019 post its acquisition of smart home company Nest. In January of 2021, when Google completed its Fitbit Fitbit acquisition, the company said that the, quote, deal has always been about devices, not data, unquote, and that it will, quote, protect Fitbit users' privacy, unquote. (sighs) Yeah, I'm not buying that. (laughs) And same thing with Nest and all the other companies that Google buys and and some of these other companies. I'm sorry. It's, It's about the customers. It's about the data. Maybe they won't use it to serve ads right away. Maybe it'll be in some indirect fashion, but the more they know about you, inevitably, the more they will target you with ads. I, it's all about the data. I, 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 I don't think there's any other real reason why Google would want to buy Fitbit, to be honest. All right, so this next one is uh, about a Microsoft feature that is recently released to keep your password safe. And I will go ahead and caveat this now. I don't think this feature is that big of a deal mostly because of how what you need to do to use it. Uh, but I'll I'll say more about that when I'm done. I just mostly wanted to talk about it because I think it's interesting that they're trying to do anything at all, and we do need to do more to make it harder to get at passwords. Okay. From Lifehacker, your PC's password is not something to be shared lightly. It's the keys to your kingdom. From work to social media to banking, your whole world is likely accessible from your Windows machine. Consequently, Microsoft is begging us to not be idiots who will hand our passwords over to anyone who asks. But they know some of us will, which is why they've recently rolled out some powerful features to protect us from ourselves. The issue comes down to phishing, or tricking someone into handing over personal information such as their PC's password. Scammers are getting very good at pulling this information out of unsuspecting victims, moving way past the traditional tactics that come off as hokey and obvious these days. One strategy is to create websites that look just like the ones you're trying to log into but are totally fake. Even if you realize the scam in time and don't hit the login button, sometimes even typing your passwords into these sites is enough for hackers to steal it. We talked about that recently. While that's never a good thing, it's even worse if the password you use for Facebook is the same as the one you use for your computer. Now bad actors know how to log into your machine. Another issue involves insecure password storage. If you keep all your passwords in a standard Word or Excel file, for example, you leave yourself vulnerable to data theft. You should only store your passwords in password-protected and encrypted sources, and never a standard document anyone can read. While the personal risk is strong, so too is the risk to companies and networks. Hackers have breached huge institutions thanks to weak or leaked passwords. Sometimes access to one user's machine is enough to trigger a complete security meltdown. With last week's big Windows 11 2022 update, Microsoft has issued new weapons to defend you against PC password theft. The first is an alert that pops up whenever you use your Windows login password with another website. The hope is to discourage you from using your PC's password with any other service. If the site you're logging into is actually a phishing site, hackers will now know your PC's password, but even a legitimate site can experience a password leak. The second option warns you whenever you enter your password in a program where it isn't safe to store. Microsoft is trying to discourage you from keeping your passwords in apps like Word or Notepad since they don't offer the same protection as a true password manager. Okay, so the article actually goes on to explain how to find this setting in Windows, but I'm not even going to tell you that because personally I'm not sure how valuable this is. For one thing, I'm almost certain that the only way to get the benefit of the website protection is if you use Microsoft Edge as your browser, and I absolutely do not recommend that you use Microsoft Edge as your browser. I seriously doubt that this feature will work with any other browser. 
Second, I'm also guessing that when it's checking to see where you might store this password, like if you're cutting and pasting this into a, a Word document or a, in this case, they said a notepad document, both of those are owned by Microsoft. I'm guessing that they probably don't have this protection built into any other apps that you might use. Only Microsoft apps. So again, not sure how useful this really is. And I think it only is checking against your Windows PC password, the one you'd use to log into the PC and no other passwords. So it's it's kind of limited. So the real upshot of this, <laughs> this entire article and the main reason I'm reading it is you need to use a password manager. Don't store your passwords in a text file. Certainly don't store them in anything online like a Google Doc. A lot of our documents today, even if you think they reside in your computer, are actually also being copied up to like Microsoft OneDrive or Apple's iCloud. Just don't put passwords in a digital file. You can write them in a personal journal. You can handwrite them on paper. That's fine. Just, you know, put it somewhere where it's not going to get found. But at least that paper journal is not accessible 24-7 via the internet. And of course, the other takeaway here is don't reuse passwords at all. Use a password manager, generate long, crazy, strong passwords that are unique for every site you go to. And then when you've got things like your PC password, things that you actually kind of have to remember and type by hand, because you can't really use a password manager on the login screen of your computer. Not only is there not an option to autofill, there's also no way to cut and paste there. So those passwords need to be more like passwords you can remember. So, you know, in cases like that, I usually recommend that people use the, the song lyric or the book quote or poem quote technique, you know, find some line from a, from a song or a poem or a book that you can easily memorize and hopefully one that people won't always associate with you. Uh, you know, go through that phrase, take the first letter of every word in that phrase, including capitalization and punctuation and make that a password. That makes it easy to remember and yet still fairly strong. Okay, next up, this is from uh, Bloomberg, and it's about a new Federal Trade Commission push for better, stronger regulations on the use of smartphone location data, which is sorely needed. The Supreme Court's June decision to overturn Roe v. Wade set off widespread concerns that location data collected and shared by smartphones could be used to prosecute people who receive or provide abortions. There's scant regulation on the industry built around the selling and buying of personal data, which IDC, I'm not sure what IDC is, says generates $15 billion annually. That puts a lot of weight on the privacy protections set by location data brokers themselves. These safeguards are inconsistent at best. Over the summer, a Bloomberg Businessweek reporter signed up for a free trial on the website Advan Research Corp., a New York-based company that markets, quote, unmatched global foot traffic analytics, unquote, to clients in real estate and finance. When he searched for the term abortion, the company's administrators disabled his trial account and sent him an email warning that it doesn't allow users to, quote, obtain information on such sensitive locations, unquote. But another reporter entered the street addresses of established abortion providers and was able to access the data his colleague had been looking for without an issue. An advanced spokesperson says that the company blocks sensitive locations like abortion clinics and jails, but adds that it's, quote, technically next to impossible, unquote, to have a comprehensive real-time list. On August 29th, the Federal Trade Commission sued Kochava, an Idaho-based location data broker, claiming that someone could identify a mobile device that had been inside an abortion clinic and trace it back to a single-family home with just a free trial of the company's service. Because Kochava's data services also include unique ID codes for mobile devices, the FTC warned, its clients can connect location data directly to actual people. 
If the suit is successful, Kuchava would have to stop selling geolocation data about sensitive places, such as reproductive health centers and places of worship, and delete any information it has already amassed. Kuchava General Manager Brian Cox said in a statement that the FTC has a, quote, general misunderstanding, unquote, about the company's business and that its marketplace has new restrictions on sensitive geographic data. In addition to the Kachava lawsuit, the FTC is in the early stages of writing new privacy rules that would apply to data brokers. That brokers' data could be used to prosecute those suspected of violating state-level abortion laws is not the FTC's only concern. Using a free trial of a tool offered by the data broker SafeGraph, Businessweek reporters were able to easily access data about visits to an addiction recovery center in Charlotte, as well as information about which commercial establishments visitors likely frequented afterward. Reporters were also able to see roughly how long customers spent inside a gun store in Plattsburgh, New York. SafeGraph, which declined to comment for the story, told lawmakers in June that the tool provides, quote, an approximate composite of visits to a location rather than identifying specific devices or persons, unquote. Smartphone users create large amounts of data that they have little effective control over, in part because of the code within apps that record device activity, which brokers can package and sell. Analyses provided to Businessweek by app analytics companies Aptopia and Mighty Signal show location tracking is particularly common in popular apps for gaming, navigation, weather, and tools like voice recorders or smart TV remotes. Developers regularly add such code to their apps through software development kits or SDKs. Some SDKs record data that developers find useful for analytics and other utilities, says Sean O'Brien of the Yale Privacy Lab. In other cases, he says, creators of SDKs pay developers to embed trackers that funnel user data to brokers. Xmode, which supplied an SDK that O'Brien's research showed was commonly found on apps catering to Muslim communities, has offered developers that install it $30,000 a month for each million daily U.S. users. Another location broker, Quadrant IO, has advertised $15,000 a month for the same number of users. Spokespeople from both companies say they've discontinued the SDKs and tightened rules around sensitive data. SafeGraph and other brokers say their data doesn't reveal individuals' identities. Yet in one 2013 study published in the scientific journal Nature, researchers were able to identify more than half the cell phones in a purportedly anonymous data set of calls because of, as they put it, quote, the uniqueness of human mobility, unquote. Since that research, both the amount of data collected and the sophistication with which it can be analyzed has increased significantly. There's even a category of service known as, quote, identity resolution, unquote, that matches data points like travel, credit card, and web browser histories, further eroding privacy. While policymakers have been professing their concerns about the potential for abuse for years, there's a sense that privacy eroding technology practices are evolving faster than the government's ability to protect against them. Yeah, so (laughs) no kidding. Location data is extremely invasive. It can tell a lot about you. And it's almost trivially easy sometimes to take location data that's supposedly anonymous uh, and figure out who that person is. And I think that's what that one study is referring to. If I recall, uh, this was a study saying if, if, you know, if you get even just four data points on someone, you can figure out who they are, you know, where they're at at three, you know, three in the morning, that's, you know, that's probably where they live, where they're at at three in the afternoon on a weekday, that's probably where they work where they are Sunday morning, uh, you know, or, or, uh, you know, one day every weekend on the same day that you happen to be in the same place, you know, is quite likely to be your place of worship, you know, and where you are in the mornings and in the afternoons might be where you drop your kids off at school. How many people share those exact same three to four location points? Very few. So I'm really glad to see that the FTC is getting on this. Uh, we need to do a lot better and we need to get on this faster. 
Location data in particular has gotten way out of hand, and we've got to clamp down on that immediately. So I'm glad to see that they're making some progress anyway. All right, quick note here from The Verge. This is about a, a Google tool that they are releasing soon. Starting early next year, Google will be able to notify you if your personal info, such as your phone number, email, or home address, shows up in search results as part of its Results About You tool. The announcement comes as Google has officially started rolling out the tool, which lets people easily create takedown requests for results with their personal info. The tool started showing up for some people last week. In a tweet, the company says the notification system will be opt-in. Ideally, it's not something that most people will have to turn on. However, it will be nice to have the option, especially for those in high-profile positions or who find themselves targeted by harassment campaigns. It's worth noting, though, that Google is only taking down the search results, not the content on the web itself. The information will still be on whatever site is hosting it, but will just be harder for people to find. Google has been letting people request that this sort of search result get taken down for a while now, and has had that ability for results that were intentional harassment or threats even longer, but it's working to make the process significantly easier to access. The results about you tool lets you flag results with your personal information with a few button taps instead of having to find Google's specific help article that will link to the form. It also gives you a place to track those requests. When notifications for it start rolling out next year, it'll be even more powerful since that you won't have to manually seek out the potentially harmful results to report them. So I think this is generally good. Obviously, the problem is that there's so much of this information out there to begin with. This does not take away the information. It just makes it a little bit harder to find. There are other search engines besides Google. So, you know, that just means that people could turn to Bing or Yandex or other search engines that exist. So it's this is not a silver bullet by any means. But, you know, it's it's better than nothing. Most people do use Google. And if it's not on Google search to a lot of people, it's doesn't exist. But for most of us on a personal level, I, you know, it's, it's good that we have more automated tools to help, uh, you know, in situations where this becomes a problem, usually in stalking and harassment cases. All right, last up, I've got an article here from Brian Krebs, uh, who writes really long articles, and I'm only going to read you part of this one. Uh, and it's going to lead into my tip of the week. And this is about Zelle scams. And Zelle is a payment app or service used by a lot of banks in the United States and, and some around the world. And people have lost a lot of money using things like Zelle, but I'm, I'm not really sure it's Zelle's problem. Anyway, let me just read the article and then we'll, we'll get into that. When U.S. consumers have their online bank accounts hijacked and plundered by hackers, U.S. financial institutions are legally obligated to reverse any unauthorized transactions as long as the victim reports the fraud in a timely manner. But new data released this week suggests that for some of the nation's largest banks, reimbursing account takeover victims has become more the exception than the rule. The findings came in a report released by Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat of Massachusetts, who in April of 2022 opened an investigation into fraud tied to Zelle, the peer-to-peer -peer digital payment service used by many financial institutions that allows customers to quickly send cash to friends and family. Zelle is run by Early Warning Services LLC, or EWS, a private financial services company which is jointly owned by Bank of America, Capital One, J.P. Morgan Chase, PNC Bank, Truist, U.S. Bank, and Wells Fargo. Zelle is enabled by default for customers at over 1,000 different financial institutions, even if a great many customers still don't know it's there. Senator Warren said several of the EWS owner banks, including Capital One, J.P. Morgan, and Wells Fargo, failed to provide all the requested data, but Warren did get the requested information from PNC, Truist, and U.S. Bank. And this is a quote from her report. It says, quote, 
Overall, the three banks that provided complete data sets reported 35,848 cases of scams involving over $25.9 million of payments in 2021 and the first half of 2022. In the vast majority of these cases, the banks did not repay the customers that reported being scammed. Overall, these three banks reported repaying customers in only 3,473 cases, representing nearly 10% of scam claims, and repaid only $2.9 million, unquote. Importantly, the report distinguishes between the cases that involve straight-up bank account takeovers and and unauthorized transfers, uh, broadly referred to as fraud, and those losses that stem from, quote, fraudulently induced payments, unquote, where the victim is tricked into authorizing the transfer of funds to scammers. And this is broadly referred to as scams. A common example of the latter is the Zell fraud scam, which uses an ever-shifting set of come-ons to trick people into transferring money to fraudsters. The Zell fraud scam often employs text messages and phone calls spoofed to look like they come from your bank, and the scam usually relates to fooling the customer into thinking they're sending money to themselves when they're really sending it to the crooks. Here's the rub. When a customer issues a payment order to their bank, the bank is obligated to honor that order so long as it passes a two-stage test. The first question asks, did the request actually come from an authorized owner or signer on the account? In the case of Zell scams, the answer is yes. Trace Fushi, a strategic advisor in the anti-money laundering practice at the uh, AT Novarica, said the second stage requires banks to give the customer's transfer order a kind of sniff test using, quote unquote, commercially reasonable fraud controls that generally are not designed to detect patterns involving social engineering. And social engineering is just a fancy word for somebody talking you into doing something that you didn't want to do. Fushi says the legal phrase commercially reasonable is the primary reason why no bank has much, if anything, in the way of controlling for scam detection. And this is a quote from Trace, quote, in order for them to deploy something that would detect a good chunk of fraud on something so hard to detect, they would generate egregiously high rates of false positives, which would also make consumers and then regulators very unhappy. This would tank the business case for the service as a whole, rendering it something that the bank can claim to not be commercially reasonable, unquote. Senator Warren's report makes clear that banks generally do not pay consumers back if they are fraudulently induced into making Zell payments. And this is another quote from the report. It says, quote, in simple terms, Zell indicated that it would provide redress for cut for users in cases of unauthorized transfers in which the user's account is accessed by a bad actor and used to transfer a payment. However, EWS's response also indicated that neither Zelle nor its parent bank owners would reimburse users fraudulently induced by a bad actor into making a payment on the platform, unquote. Still, the data suggests that banks did repay at least some of the funds stolen from scam victims about 10% of the time. Fushi said he's surprised that number is so high. And this is a quote from uh, Fushi, he says, quote, that banks are paying victims of authorized payment fraud scams anything at all is noteworthy. That's money that they're paying for out of pocket almost entirely for goodwill. You could argue that repaying all victims is a sound strategy, especially in the climate we're in. But to say that it's what all banks do remains an opinion until Congress changes the law, unquote. However, when it comes to reimbursing victims of fraud and account takeovers, the report suggests banks are stiffing their customers whenever they can get away with it. And one final quote from the report. Quote, overall, the four banks that provided complete data sets indicated that they reimbursed only 47% of the dollar amount of fraud claims they received, unquote. And the article goes on for a lot longer. Like I said, Brian Krebs likes to to have long articles, but it ends with, you know, statements on what you can do. And it's, it's rather weak. And it just says, for consumers, the same old advice remains the best. 
watch your bank statements like a hawk and immediately report and contest any charges that appear fraudulent or unauthorized. All right, so this is going to bring me to my tip of the week. And unfortunately, it's kind of a lame, <laughs> lame tip of the week. Uh, and that is how do you pay for stuff safely these days? When it comes to buying stuff online or buying stuff at a big brick and mortar store or most of the purchases, honestly, that we make, I always recommend that people use credit cards and not debit cards. Credit cards, basically uh, a 45 day interest free loan is assuming you pay it off every month like I do. And if something goes wrong, you're not out any money. It's the credit card company that's out the money. But the cases we're talking about here in particular are more informal payments. We're talking about person to person payments. If you're at, you know, go out to dinner with a bunch of friends and you, you know, want to split dinner up, you know, people today tend to whip out apps like Venmo or the cash app and they send each other, you know, they split the bill and they send each other money virtually through their phones, you know, and that's all well and good. As long as you don't make any typos when you're doing it and put in the wrong person's name or something, you know, generally speaking that that's, that's fine, at least from a security standpoint. Now, from a privacy standpoint, it's usually horrible. Venmo in particular was horrible about privacy. And I think they've changed this, but for a long, long time by default, and Venmo was a social media app. It wasn't, it wasn't just a payment app. It was meant to be a social media app. So you were sharing by default with anybody who cared to look uh, information about every, every time you sent money with, with the app to the point where people were prosecuted for drug buys because they were using Venmo and didn't realize, you know, that they probably put in comments, you know, for drugs or whatever. Uh, <laughs> and it was public information. So from a privacy standpoint, Venmo is not good. I, I think they may have changed their default settings, but nevertheless, I would avoid Venmo, even though it's extremely popular. So what are you supposed to use? And, and that's where things get difficult. Personally, if possible, I would use something like PayPal or Apple cash. They are both secure and you're much more likely to, to, to find some support if you actually sent it to someone that you didn't mean to. Zelle, I think Zelle is still okay if you're going to set up like a long-term relationship or it's somebody in your friends and family where you can set it up and you know make a test payment you know, to make sure that works and goes to the right person. And then once that's set up, it's kind of set up for good. And you're, you know, from there on, you can, you can use it. And I, I think that's okay. It's the one-off payments that you have to kind of worry about. And, and the point of this article and what, and what I really want to drive home here is that kind of like a debit card, when you pay for something with Zelle, that money's gone. It's out of your account. And that's sort of true also with some of these other payment accounts, you know, Venmo and cash and some of the other things are drawing from, you know, from your bank accounts in a lot of cases. And if somebody tricks you into sending them money, if, if they social engineer you and you give someone money that you shouldn't give money to, you know, that's, that's kind of on you. And that's what these banks are basically saying. If someone were to trick you into paying them a bunch of cash, that cash is gone. It's not like you can go to the bank and say, Hey, that guy just tricked me into giving a hundred bucks. I want my money back. The bank's going to say, well, you gave him a hundred bucks. And it's only one step further to say that I used Zelle to give that person a hundred bucks. That money is still gone. It's out of your account. And the bank's going to look at you and say like, you know, maybe you should have done your homework or maybe you should have checked that a little bit better. There's not a whole lot we can do here. You know, maybe if it was the case that the person that you're selling that money to happened to be a customer of the same bank that you are, you know, that would give them a little bit more leeway. They could, you know, they could actually go to both accounts. Now they control both ends of the transaction. You know, they might be able to help you there, but how likely is that going to be? So at the end of the day, what the real advice here is just be really, really careful when you're using some of these payment systems that directly take money from your bank accounts. Because if you mess up, if you, if you put in a typo and send it to the wrong person, 
if someone sends you a link and that link is compromised, or maybe someone switches the link out and you're actually sending that money to somebody else, that money is probably gone and never coming back. So wherever possible, use credit cards because you're not actually out that money until you pay your bill at the end of the month and avoid debit cards and systems like Zelle uh, in cases where you're not absolutely sure who it's going to. And like I said, if you're going to transfer a lot of money to somebody and you want to make sure you get that right, do a test payment first, you know, send them 10, 10 bucks, five bucks, something like that before you send them a thousand. And once you've established that you're sending it to the right person and that goes through, okay, then you can feel more confident about sending the rest of the money. So there you have it. There's your news and your tip of the week. All right, well, I'm starting to get some of your listener questions, and I'm going to pick some of them to read here on the air. Some of them, honestly, I may just reply to in email. But for the ones where I think you, the listener, would get something out of my answer to those questions, uh, I will read them here. And I've got a couple for you right now. First, this is from Ray, who lives in Toronto. And he says, I'm new enough to Macs that I haven't tried the Time Machine backup with my old Mac yet. But would leaving a USB connection plugged in not leave the Time Machine backups open to ransomware attacks as well due to the physical access? Would it be better to only connect the external drive as needed for a backup and then unplug it again? All right, so that's a great question. Time Machine is a wonderful feature for, for Apple users uh, for backing up their computers, particularly desktop computers, because with, with uh, laptops, it's kind of a pain because them being portable, it's kind of hard to you know, carry around an external hard drive that you plug in for backups all the time. But you can use it that way. As this person suggests, you actually can periodically plug in your time machine and only do backups when it's plugged in. If while it's plugged in, your Apple machine should back up once an hour. And obviously it's not making a complete snapshot of everything on your hard drive once an hour. It does a one complete backup. And then from there on, it only does incremental backups. It only makes extra copies of things that have actually changed. But while it's plugged in, it will do this once an hour. Uh, I think it's like once an hour uh, for a couple days and then once a day for, uh, for a week and then once a week for a month or something like that. It, it has kind of a staggered backup schedule, but it's a great way to back up your stuff. And you absolutely need to back up all your stuff. Certainly anything that you can't replace, you know, family pictures, family videos, important documents you may have scanned, anything that if were lost, uh, you could not replace those things absolutely need to be backed up. But the problem with using this particular technique, or at least one of the limitations of this particular technique, where you have a dedicated external hard drive connected via USB cable to your Mac is any bad thing that happens to your, your Mac can also happen to this, this hard drive sitting right next to it, which is not only things like ransomware, which the, this questioner is absolutely right to, to bring up, but also, you know, floods, fire, natural disasters, theft, all those kind of things. So I actually recommend if you can do it to do two different backups, both uh, to an external hard drive, but also to a cloud backup. Cloud backup services have gotten very cheap. If you pick the right ones, they're very secure. I personally use sync.com. It lets me choose my own password, which means that even sync.com doesn't have access to my data. Unlike, by the way, iCloud or Microsoft's online backup, like OneDrive, even though your data and your files are encrypted, you know, both at rest on their servers and while being transferred to their servers, they have the keys, which means that, you know, potentially rogue employees will have access to those keys or people who hack into their systems or would have keys. So I prefer to control my own destiny and encrypt my own data so that I have full control over that and full responsibility, therefore, for that. But Ray, you're absolutely right. If you have your drive just sitting there connected and for some reason your main computer gets infected with the ransomware, yeah, probably every other 
you know, storage device or even network addressable storage device that your Mac has access to are potentially also going to be locked up with ransomware. But for me, that means that the, the argument is that you need to also back up to a cloud provider where you can get to historical data before it's backed up. But yes, if you want, and this is what I used to do actually before cloud backups were, were so affordable, I actually had two time machine drives and I would rotate them. You know, once a month I would take one of them with me to work and they were encrypted so that even if someone stole it at work, they would be useless to them. That way, if something happened to the drive that was at home, I at least had a drive at work that was at most a month behind. And you could, if you wanted to do that at home as well, you know, just to try to minimize exposure, only plug it in every so often. But honestly, at that point, I think you're kind of working out, working around some of the, the benefits of the feature, which were the hourly backups. I don't think you're going to want to plug it in on the, you know, every hour on the hour, but you know, that's a choice that you need to make. My solution for that would be to do that, leave it plugged in all the time, get that great hourly backup, but also uh, supplement that with a cloud backup as well. All right, one more question. This is from H187, who remained basically to be anonymous and from Connecticut. And it's, it's a little terse. Uh, I will try to interpret what I think they mean by this. And they're doing some digital banking. They're trying to link to an external account. And uh, he's getting a prompt saying, sign into your account, you know, provide your ID and password. And they're asking, you know, who is this data access provider that are saying they could securely make this connection with my bank? You know, is it safe or is this wise? Who is this anonymous data access provider? It's hard to say if they're not going to tell you exactly. My guess, the most popular one in use today is a company called Plaid, P-L-A-I-D. And kind of their whole raison d'etre, their whole reason for being is to make these connections between like mint.com or other sites to do aggregated financial information, you know, who want to kind of give you a picture of where all your money's going and how you're spending it and, you know, give you investment advice and whatever, you know, often they want direct access to your financial accounts. So they can see, you know, where your money's going, but that usually means that you're giving them login IDs and passwords for all, for all of your bank accounts, which should, you know, cause everybody to pucker up a little bit or you're not thinking about it. And the service that often does this matchmaking, that does these connections and does your verification for you is this company called Plaid. I've researched this company a little bit. I'll have a link in the show notes if you want to see one of the articles that I looked at from a really nice site called All Things Secured. And basically, from a, from a security standpoint, from a purely technological standpoint, they're checking all the right boxes. They're using super duper encryption and they're taking special care not to let this information get loose. Ideally, the way this should work behind the scenes is they're kind of given these, these companies uh, an access token, which allows them to get to your accounts, but probably not store your actual password anywhere. So that even if let's say mint.com was hacked and you've given mint.com access to seven different financial accounts, that doesn't necessarily mean that all those seven accounts are now accessible by the bad guy who hacked mint.com. Now, what we really need, and I, I've seen a couple banks that have done this, is we need like a, a restricted access read-only separate account. Like I should be able to have a second set of credentials, maybe the same username but a different password, that I can give to a site like mint.com, which would only allow them to see certain things. In fact, it'd be really nice if I could tell them exactly what I want them to, to be able to have access to. And I think even when you do plaid, sometimes it'll bring up a pop-up and say, okay, how many of these accounts do you actually want them to be able to see? That's all good. Restricting access is good. Need to know basis is good. 
And all they really need is to be able to read the data. They shouldn't have to be able to, they shouldn't have the ability to write to the data. In other words, they shouldn't be able to transfer money or take out money. All you really want them to see for the purposes of what they're doing is to see where you're spending your money. So they just need to kind of be able to see them without it being able to alter them. I wish that was more common, but I think that this plaid technology under the covers is basically kind of doing the same thing. It's giving your data aggregator service, you know, some limited access to these bank accounts. So I, so I do, I do not claim to have insider knowledge about what particular one you're using. It may not be plaid. I also am not in a position to say that this is absolutely 100% secure because honestly, nothing is ever 100% secure. But my understanding from what research I've done is that these mechanisms are for the most part safe. Now, if you don't want to do it this way, there are other options. Sometimes these services that want access to your accounts uh, will let you do it using a debit card. Sometimes you could do that kind of old fashioned technique where it will do you know, two micro deposits. Like you'll give them your routing number and your account number, and they will do two micro deposits into your account, like seven cents and 11 cents. Uh, and then you come back and say, okay, if once those have shown on your account, tell me what the two amounts were. And when they match what we actually put there, we will consider that to be a good connection. This whole plaid service is trying to work around those kind of clunky, inconvenient techniques and make it simpler. All right. So there you go. Our first two listener questions. Uh, and if you want to send in your own questions, send them to dear Carrie at firewalls, don't stop dragons.com. Or to make that easier, go to this article at fdsd.me. That's my new super cool Earl shortener website. FDSD is in firewalls. Don't stop dragons. FDSD.me slash Q N a that's the letter Q, the letter N, the letter a, and that will take you to an article telling you all about how to submit your questions, including how to send me a little audio clip if you would actually like to hear your voice on the airwaves ask your question. And everybody who sends me a a valid question, whether I read it on the air or not, will go in a pool of people that I will pull out a name out of the hat once a month, and I will send you a free copy of my book. If you happen to live here in the U.S., I will send you a physical copy. And if you are international, I will send you a PDF copy of the book. And one more thing, and this segues nicely into another little bit of news I want to pass along. I am currently hard at work on the fifth edition of Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons, the book. This is going to be a massive update. I'm adding all sorts of great information. Since I've retired two years ago, I have been able to spend a lot more time on security and privacy stuff, and I've learned a ton of stuff. (laughs) So not only am I updating all these screenshots uh, from Windows 10 and Windows 11 and Mac OS Ventura and Mac OS Monterey. Oh my goodness. That's going to take a lot of effort. Not only am I doing all of that, I'm actually adding a lot of more content. I've just, for, for example, I just finished an entire chapter on privacy and I've learned so many new things and got so many other great tools and advice to give out. So this is going to be a huge, huge update. So if you are one of the lucky winners of my book and you would like to wait for that fifth edition, I will tell you you've won. I will give you that option. And then when the book comes out, I will send you the new version as as opposed to the current version, which is still great. I mean, the new version still has 170 tips in it and a lot of great advice. Much of that will remain the same. But if you happen to win a copy of the book and you want the latest and greatest, uh, I will give you that option. So send me your questions to Carey at firewalls.subdragons.com or go to fdsd.me slash QNA for more details. And I will pick out some of your questions and answer them here on the air. Thank you to those who have already sent me some questions. We've got more great interviews in the hopper. Next week, we'll be hearing from Doug Levin. The week after that, we'll be talking to a gentleman named Adrianus from Nord Security. 
and not long after that, towards the end of November and into December, we'll be celebrating the 300th episode of the podcast and the fifth edition of the book, which I hope will be out uh, at the end of the year, maybe early January. So there'll be promotions for new and existing patrons, actually, to get my version 2.0 of the super cool dragon challenge coins. There will also be a raffle where I'll be giving away more copies of the book and hopefully lots of other fun stuff from people I've had relationships with over the years. Like, you know, maybe we'll get some malware bites and proton subscriptions in there or fast mail. I'm still working on the details, but that will be coming up soon. So lots of great stuff coming up in the future. So subscribe to this podcast if you have not already. That way you will not miss out on any of that wonderful goodness. If you haven't already, I would love to get some reviews for the podcast. I really haven't gotten any new ones for a while. Uh, they do make a difference, especially uh, when you put leave them on Apple, which is where most people find podcasts. So on iTunes, if you would leave a nice review on there, I would much appreciate it. And some of those I will even read on the air to, uh, just as a little way of saying thank you. You can hold off on reviewing the book for now because I'm going to need lots of those when uh, the new one comes out. So stay tuned on that. I will be making a big push for reviews there once that book is released. All right. Lots of great stuff in the works. Take care, everybody. Stay safe out there. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. Drawbridge down.